Half-Price Horror. Hello, and welcome to Half-Price Horror, where we get our terror at a discount and pass the savings on to you. Half-Price Horror is a spoiler-heavy podcast that takes a deep dive into scary movies curated by the selection at the local Half-Price bookstore. I'm your host, John, and today we'll be taking a look at In the Mouth of Madness, sometimes stylized as John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness, which premiered in Italy in December of 1994 and had its U.S. premiere in February of 1995. Written by Michael DeLuca, directed by John Carpenter. Now, I don't want to slight Michael DeLuca, who's a talented writer and producer whose name has been on everything from Blade 2 to The Babysitter's Club, the Netflix Babysitter's Club, but there's a reason the film is called John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness and not Michael DeLuca's In the Mouth of Madness. Carpenter is such a talented and influential director that I could not let this podcast get to 50 episodes without covering at least one of his movies. So let's talk a bit about him before we dig into the film. John Carpenter came of age in a turbulent time in filmmaking, attending film school at USC in the late 60s and early 70s, right around the time when the Hays Code was dying and modern cinema was opening up opportunities for young directors who wanted to challenge the system. He won an Academy Award while still in film school for his short The Resurrection of Bronco Billy, and the 45-minute student film he made with Dan O'Bannon wound up being expanded into a feature release, Dark Star. He was clearly going places, and his next film, Assault on Precinct 13, was also a modest success, but it was 1978's Halloween that made him a household name. Now, we'll talk more about Halloween when we finally get to that storied franchise, which I'm hoping is going to be sometime next year, but the main thing you need to know right now is that it was an unprecedented financial success on a modest budget, and it got the studios knocking down his door to get him to sign on with them. Unfortunately, his next several films went on to underperform, at least by the standards of the Michael Myers-sized uber-hit people were expecting. While The Fog, Escape from New York, Christine, Starman, Big Trouble in Little China, Prince of Darkness, and They Live have all gone on to be huge cult classics. None of them made even $30 million at the box office, compared to the $70 million Halloween raked in on a much smaller budget. And sadly, In the Mouth of Madness continued that trend. By the time he finally called it quits as a director in 2010, he was pretty thoroughly disillusioned with Hollywood and happy to settle into a living as a composer and musician and full-time collector of Halloween royalties, which is a lucrative job if you can get it. It's safe to say that he's someone who has always been one step ahead and perhaps slightly off to the side of what mainstream audiences have been looking for. The film stars the legendary Sam Neill as John Trent, now, Neil had already been gathering fame in the 80s for his roles as Damien in the third Omen movie and Captain Borodin in The Hunt for Red October, but it was his turn as Dr. Alan Grant in Jurassic Park that made him permanently recognizable, and Julie Carmen as Linda Stiles. Carmen is a longtime character actress, but genre fans would probably know her best as vampire Regina Dandridge in the ill-fated Fright Night 2. I may cover Fright Night 2 someday if I can ever find it, but that's not exactly easy, which is one of the reasons I call it ill-fated. 
Neil and Carmen are backed up by a murderer's row of famous faces in supporting parts. Jürgen Prochnow, who's lent his gravitas to films like Dune, The Seventh Sign, and God Help Us, Wing Commander, shows up here as sinister author Sutter Kane, while the iconic David Warner, who we've talked about in Scream 2, and who we'll talk about again and again and again because he's in freaking everything, is Dr. Wren, Trent's psychiatrist. John Glover, who's done hundreds of parts, but who everyone of a certain age will instantly recognize as Lex Luthor's dad in Smallville, plays Saperstein, head of the mental institution Trent winds up in. Oddly enough, I can't even say spoilers here, it's the opening scene. And Bernie Casey, a famous face's famous face, who's been in films from The Man Who Fell to Earth to Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, plays Trent's employer Robbie. And last but not least, no less than Moses himself, the man who uncovered the mystery of Soylent Green and found the Statue of Liberty on that horrible planet of the apes. Charlton Heston shows up as publisher Jackson Harglow. It's a clever piece of casting, but we'll get into the reasons why as we go on. As with our last episode, this does contain a trigger warning for death by suicide. We won't discuss it much, but I do want to make my listeners aware of it before we proceed. This film opens directly into the credits, which roll out over the images of presses churning copy after copy of Sutter Kane's latest bestseller, The Hobbs and Horror, and a driving rock instrumental that sounds vaguely similar to Don't Fear the Reaper, although, as is typical for John Carpenter movies, it's scored by Carpenter himself. The back of the book promises that Kane's next novel, In the Mouth of Madness, is coming soon. We then cut to a mental institution where a slightly prissy Saperstein is overseeing the admittance of John Trent. Trent is a difficult patient, to put it mildly, assaulting the orderlies and kicking one square in the testicles before they finally drag him to cell number nine. Trent insists he's not the crazy one, shouting after the departing orderly, I'm sorry about the balls! It was a lucky shot, that's all! Now, you might say on first seeing this film, that the mental institution looks a bit cliched and problematic in that very ableist way reserved for depictions of asylums in movies. You might also say it's unlikely that a violent patient like Trent wouldn't be sedated for transport, and he almost certainly wouldn't be wearing this melodramatic straitjacket that feels like it comes straight out of some movie studio's costume vault. But, well, we're not really going to be able to talk about this without discussing spoilers, so let's just break the news here. John Trent isn't real. He's a fictional character made flesh by the power of a writer's imagination, and the inhuman abilities of the old gods. And what he's experiencing is a version of reality sculpted by a hack horror writer with a taste for the melodramatic. Everything here, all of the over-the-top and absurd and nonsensical bits, as we're going to discover, it all makes perfect if macabre sense including Sutter Kane's visit to his cell. Now, Kane only appears in silhouette at this point, but Trent immediately recognizes him, saying this is a rotten way to end it. It's only on repeat viewings that you realize he's talking about in the mouth of madness itself, which he's come to realize is creating reality as more people read it and come to accept it as the new consensus versions of events. This is an extremely metatextual and metafictional movie, which was common in the 90s. It was really something that filmmakers were starting to talk about in conversation with each other, so it crops up in a lot of movies right around this period, 
We've already talked about Scream, of course, which was the massive metafiction success, but there's a lot of others we'll be looking at as we go on. Kane only replies, This isn't the end. You haven't read it yet. Which both refers to the fact that Trent doesn't really know how the book ends, he only thinks he does, and that the movie itself ends with Trent watching in the mouth of madness and fully coming to terms with his own fictional status. It is a bold, metafictional joke and a bold decision to make a movie that can't fully be understood until the second go-through, and you kind of have to admire Carpenter and DeLuca's nerve here. We then get a series of rapid memories from Trent's point of view, or ominous, portentous foreshadowing from ours, and Trent collapses onto the mattress, screaming in terror. Later that day, Dr. Wren visits the institution to interview Trent. He's apparently been looking for cases that fit Trent's profile, Again, this is a line that only makes sense on the second viewing, when you know that Trent has murdered a fan of Sutter Kane's with an axe rather than allow him to finish reading In the Mouth of Madness, because according to Saperstein, things must be getting pretty bad out there to bring you fellas in. John Glover has an odd performance style in this one. I, I'm not sure I'm a big fan, but... It certainly is memorable. Ren goes in to discover that Trent has used the single black crayon he requested to draw crosses all over the walls and his own face, arms, and outfit. Now again, this doesn't seem particularly reasonable given what we later find out about what happened to him, but it seems like at this point he has decided that the asylum is safer than the outside world knowing what he knows about Kane, and he is trying to convince them that he belongs in here and doesn't deserve to be let out. Wren proceeds to interview Trent, the flashback structure of the movie mimics many of H.P. Lovecraft's stories, and indeed many of the text and titles of Sutter Kane's works are barely concealed Lovecraft references, whose problems as an insurance investigator began when he was hired to look into the disappearance of famous horror author Sutter Kane. Trent starts a little ahead of events, though, describing the wrap-up of his previous case as he nails a businessman to the wall for insurance fraud. The same company who hired him to handle that insurance fraud case also represents a publishing contract with Arcane Press, who's filing a claim for the loss of manuscript on Sutter Kane's upcoming bestseller, In the Mouth of Madness. They want to bring Trent on staff to deal with the problem, but he insists, I'm my own man. Nobody pulls my strings. Again, this whole movie plays very differently on the second watch. Neil's delivery is so hard-boiled and cynical, it's almost funny. But when you realize that he's nothing more than the creation of a third-rate author who goes in for the cliched and the melodramatic, it all makes perfect sense. Um, Kane, not DeLuca, just in case anybody was wondering. The insurance company's owner, Robbie, takes Trent out to lunch to discuss the problem, but they're so absorbed in their conversation that they don't notice an axe-wielding man wearing clothes covered in dried blood emerge from a building across the street and march grimly in their direction. And this isn't one of those very bold decisions on Carpenter's part. He doesn't make this a jump scare. We are able to watch the entire march across the street due to the way the shot is framed, but they are turned partway away and looking down at papers and they just don't see it. And you're just looking at the whole thing going, look up, look up, look up. It's only when he smashes the window and snarls at Trent, do you read Sutter Kane? that they realize how much danger they're in, and by then it's very nearly too late. The killer, whose eyes have strangely formed pupils and irises, raises his axe to kill Trent, only to be gunned down by a pair of policemen as Trent watches. 
That evening, Trent watches news of riots at bookstores over Kane's novels, and the next day he meets with publisher Jackson Harglow and editor Linda Stiles. They have a more or less friendly conversation, but one shot through with a certain amount of alpha male posturing. This is why they needed Charlton Heston for this role, honestly. They're trying to establish Trent as someone who's very independent, someone who's of his own mind, someone who does not take kindly to being told what to do, and if it had been anyone opposite him with less screen presence, he would have just come off as a bullying jackass. Instead, he comes off as someone who's unafraid to challenge powerful men in the seat of their own domain. Trent is unimpressed with horror, clearly not given to reading for pleasure, and doesn't mind sharing his unvarnished thoughts and opinions with the people who need him more than he needs them. Harglow and Stiles unconvincingly explain that Sutter Kane, a horror superstar who outsells Stephen King, Kane's name is an obvious phoneme of King's and he's stylized on the covers in a very similar way to King's uh, name stylized on covers with the oversized S and R and the oversized C and E, disappeared two months ago, and that their only contact since then was through his agent, who delivered several chapters of the book to them, not long before attempting to murder John Trent with an axe in Midtown Manhattan. Trent is a little startled to find out who tried to kill him, and he makes a somewhat tasteless joke about it that causes Stiles to leave the room in frustration. He goes after her to apologize, and she explains that the missing man is vital to the future of their company and everyone is a bit on edge. Also, presumably she knew this man and is still a little traumatized by the fact that he started trying to murder people with axes. Trent clearly thinks that the whole thing is a publicity stunt, especially when she says that Sutter Kane's writing is known to cause disorientation and memory loss, and that the company doesn't even have an address for their superstar author. It's a pretty shaky story, but there are so many reasons for this to be untrustworthy information that it's clearly deliberate. On his way home, Trent passes a series of posters for the Hobbs End Horror, one of which is torn in a suspicious way. Just as he's about to investigate the tear, he hears a commotion from the nearby alley where a graffiti artist is being brutalized by a burly police officer. Trent watches silently and contemptuously for a moment, turning away just before the cop says, You want some too, buddy? When he gets back, he calls Robbie and tells him that he thinks Kane's disappearance is unrelated to the growing numbers of bookstore riots, which he writes off as mass hysteria, and that he's sure it's a stunt to increase demand for their upcoming book. The next day, Trent picks up copies of Kane's books at a local bookstore, after being momentarily unnerved by a stranger who says only, He sees you. He reads them all in rapid order, he might not read for pleasure, but he's clearly a ferociously smart man, looking for any clues that might explain Kane's whereabouts. Needless to say, digesting that much horror in rapid succession causes nightmares. When he falls asleep, he's back in the alley, but this time the graffiti artist has finished spray-painting I Can See on the wall, presumably I Can See You, and the cop looks horrifying and inhuman. Behind him, a crowd of people wielding axes, led by Kane's agent, blocks off his retreat, and he watches as they circle around the agent and brutally chop him to pieces before eating the body. Trent wakes with a start, and the horrifying inhuman cop is sitting on the couch next to him, causing him to wake with a start again. Because by this point in horror history, everybody uses the double nightmare trick in movies where somebody wakes up, and then something else scary happens and they wake up again. I talked about this in Nightmare on Elm Street, the remake, how every nightmare is a double nightmare in that movie. It was actually to the point where Neil Gaiman parodied it in his Sandman comic by cursing someone to a dream that is 
endless and consists of nothing but waking up only to find that this is a dream too. He looks at the cane novels on his coffee table and realizes that all of them feature a shape outlined in red somewhere on the cover. Cutting them out, he assembles them like puzzle pieces to form a map of the state of New Hampshire, and a red dot in the lower right corresponds perfectly to the location of Hobbes' end as described in Sutter Kane's books. Assuming that the destination is part of the publisher's publicity stunt, he confronts them with his suspicions that they've stashed Kane there for him to find. Harglow insists they're on the up and up, and sends Styles along with him to ensure that he doesn't deliberately mock up some evidence to deny their claim. The two of them go driving into the New Hampshire countryside, either to find the real Hobbs End or whatever glorified contest prize is waiting at the destination on the map. What follows is, I confess, something of a longueur, as the two of them drive around and chat for a while without discovering anything. I remember this particular portion of the film losing me so badly when I saw it in the theater that I actually grumbled out loud, something I feel extremely bad about in retrospect, even though this bit honestly does drag a lot. Styles talks about what scares her in Kane's work. She's frightened by Kane's metafictional conceit that his books are actually altering the fabric of reality as more people read and believe in them, creating a universe where madness and sanity are flipped and the supposedly sane people might envy the chance to break with an intolerable existence. I apologize for any ableist language regarding mental health, by the way. It's just impossible to talk about this movie's take on mental illness without discussing its terminology. It is not in the mouth of mental illness, after all. Now, this was the other thing that turned me off to the film in theaters. Stiles is discussing solipsism, the philosophy that the self is all that can be known to exist and consensus reality is a figment of the imagination. It's a frustrating concept because it's simultaneously impossible to truly disprove. Our only evidence of the world comes from our brain's interpretation of sensory data, and thus we can never really be sure that what we're experiencing is real and not a vivid and internally consistent hallucination. And obviously, self-evidently wrong. If this world was a figment of my imagination, you'd better believe it would be a lot nicer than it is. This makes more sense when you rewatch it and realize that Linda Stiles is another fictional character who is more or less parroting Sutter Kane's words, and a lot of this philosophy is intended to be a little bit slipshod and cheaply written and inserted exposition. Again, Sutter Kane is a third-rate author. But still, the whole conversation is exhausting, and again, not much happens in this portion of the movie. Even the supposed action here is a little bit lacking in tension. Styles passes a young bicyclist who looks terrified, and then passes the same bicyclist again going the opposite way, looking decades older and world-weary. She hits him with her car when he comes straight at her out of nowhere a third time, but he simply mutters, I can't get out, they won't let me out, before getting on the bicycle again and pedaling away. It's ominous, yes, and it's never really explained. You never find out who the bicyclist is or what he's trying to do or why he can't leave, but it's not ominous enough to really make this anything less than a very slow section of an otherwise engaging movie. As Trent dozes, Linda drives the car through a hallucinatory landscape that takes the form of endless clouds and then a strange biomechanical tunnel we only see in glimpses. Terrified, she emerges into broad daylight on the other end of a covered bridge in the small town of Hobbs End. Trent, who has no idea what she just went through, takes the wheel, and they go to explore what he assumes to be a staged theme park of some sort. 
honestly, I kind of feel like this would benefit from expansion. Like, this would have made an interesting TV series, or miniseries at the very least, because really, you want to explore Hobbs End more. It's the most interesting part of the story, the idea that they're wandering through what is essentially someone's fictional creation brought to life, but unfortunately, the movie clocks in at just over 90 minutes, and that's not really enough time to give it a good exploration. I would have loved a, a couple of hours in Hobbs End just exploring before things started getting really bad. Speaking of the town, it is to Linda's utter shock and horror a perfect replica of Kane's depiction. Even the town children, who dart fairly from one alley to another, match the excerpts she's read from Kane's upcoming novel, In the Mouth of Madness. But Trent is looking the other way when they run past, and he assumes she's lying or hallucinating. They check into the Pickman Hotel, another Lovecraft reference to Pickman's model, and Stiles is able to predict the exact description of the painting on the wall and the loose floorboard in the lobby. But she's unnerved to discover that the painting moves when they're not looking at it. She tells Stiles about it, but again, he doesn't believe her. He points out that the Mrs. Pickman who just checked them in, played by Francis Bay, another famous face with almost 200 credits in film and television, was an axe murderer in the books. Kane kind of has a thing for axe murderers. While the sweet old lady downstairs doesn't look like she could hurt a fly. His sudden skepticism seems odd in light of his depictions everywhere else in the film as a world-weary cynic who thinks that people are capable of all kinds of horrible things, but remember, Trent's character serves the needs of the plot at all times. God, every author wishes they had this kind of get-out-of-jail-free card for plot holes. Trent tries to prove her wrong by opening one of the hotel room windows to demonstrate that Kane's more ludicrous flourishes, like a black church with 250-foot-high spires decorated in gold, don't exist in the actual physical reality they're inhabiting. But Stiles is Kane's editor, and she knows every detail of his book. She opens another window to reveal that Trent was looking in the wrong direction. The church is really there after all. And according to Cain, it's the seat of an ancient evil whose worshippers built over the church on the site dedicated to God, and consecrated it instead to their own alien ancient deities. Again, very Lovecraft. When they go to investigate, a sequence plays out straight out of the excerpts of In the Mouth of Madness that Stiles read. A mob of townspeople shows up looking for Johnny, the son of the mob's leader, Simon, played by Wilhelm von Homburg, who's most famous as Vigo the Carpathian from Ghostbusters 2, and Sutter Kane, who's developed a sinister influence over all the town's children. Presumably the excerpts don't show Trent and Stiles watching all this as they go looking for the manuscript and the missing author, which turns out to be the real text of the book. Kane selectively released this information as part of the reality-shaping endgame of his authorial career. And Earth. The doors to the church fling wide, revealing Johnny, but then open and close again and again until they finally reveal Sutter Kane himself. My immediate thought, holy crap, were they trying to make him look exactly like Neil Gaiman? Turns out there are so many people who've made the comparison that Gaiman himself weighed in on Twitter saying, Sutter Kane has better hair. A pack of Doberman pinchers comes running out from the sides of the church, chasing the mob away and killing several of them. Now, again, this is why I kind of wish it could have been a series, is because this is an interesting plot in and of itself. The plot of the book within the movie, which they're experiencing as lived experience, is kind of cool. The idea of there's this black church, 
Sutter Kane has let something loose from it. It's infecting the town's children. It's infecting the town's adults through the children. This would have been cool to see unfold for a while as you started getting hints that more sinister things were going on. I would love to see this redone as a series. Trent is convinced the whole thing was staged. As far as he's concerned, this is the final proof that the publisher is doing this as some sort of stunt, with him as the patsy who will dutifully go back and report the quote-unquote real supernatural goings-on behind Sutter Kane's latest bestseller. He knows that the simplest explanation for Linda's predictive awareness of events is that she's in on it all. In real life, there was a psychic who famously predicted the burning of the Reichstag, who was also prominently involved in the social circles of several famous Nazis. They killed him because, again, the simplest explanation for predictive awareness of events is that you know something somebody doesn't. And in another film, the director might genuinely try to play this up as psychological horror. In theory, you could present a version of this whole thing that feels like Trent is being gaslit into believing he's just a character in a novel, keeping it ambiguous until the very end. But Carpenter and DeLuca don't have any interest in that, and as a result, Trent's insistence on sanity comes off feeling very much like a delusion, which is a fascinating take on many of the film's themes. Stiles confesses that yes, the original plan was to stage the disappearance of Kane as a publicity stunt, but it's all gone off the rails. There was never supposed to be a Hobbs End, they were never supposed to find anything on their trip to New Hampshire, and she certainly wasn't expecting to find events exactly paralleling the apocalyptic plot synopsis of In the Mouth of Madness. She tells him that in Kane's book, First the children of Hobbs End, and eventually everyone in the world is taken over by a form of insanity that slowly mutates them into inhuman monsters, vessels for the old gods that Cain described in his previous books. And she's worried that it might really be happening. She does not convince Trent. He decides to leave and goes down to check out. The painting on the wall now shows a couple with distorted inhuman faces, which he assumes is also part of the scam. He tries to draw Mrs. Pickman into conversation, hoping to get her to slip and admit that she's an actor portraying one of Kane's characters, but she doesn't drop the facade. In fact, as we see but Trent doesn't, she's got her husband handcuffed naked under the checkout desk. While he's talking, Stiles steals the car and leaves. Trent decides to go to the bar for a drink and meet Simon, who also refuses to be drawn into any kind of admission that he's an actor, and sticks to the scripted version of events. The kids, and now the adults, of Hobbs End are being transformed into monsters by something Sutter Kane released from the church. His inhumanly pale face and bloated features seem to confirm this, but by this point Trent has fallen victim to epistemic closure. He's so convinced that this is all a scam that he'd rather make up impossibly elaborate conspiracy theories than believe the evidence of his own eyes. Cough, cough, Republican Party, cough, cough. Stiles, meanwhile, goes back to the church. She's confronted by the feral children, now visibly mutated with fangs and slitted pupils, who call her mommy and insist that she needs to take care of them. She instead goes inside, finding a decor heavy on the upside-down crosses and general blasphemy. I know it all makes sense within the metafictional conceit of the story, but I couldn't help giggling at the thought of trying to find a construction company willing to build this place. Hey, uh, yeah, Charlie says you got all the crosses upside down in here. You want us to fix that? One of the side rooms contains Sutter Kane himself, typing away on a manual typewriter. This was the tail end of the era where there was still actually a debate about whether typewriters were better than computers for writing, which just seems nonsensical now. 
He greets her by saying she can edit this novel from the inside looking out, which is one of the best lines in the whole film. Cain explains that he's come to realize that all his inspiration came from the dark ancient gods that he wrote about in his novels thinking they were fictional, and they're giving him the power to rewrite reality with his words so that they can return to our existence. He looks over at another door, one thick with slime and visibly pulsing, and while the old rubber door made to look like wood trick is at this point a horror cliché that dates all the way back to 1963's The Haunting, I don't think I've ever seen it done so unsettlingly well as it is here. Stiles seems to be in some kind of trance, and Kane is able to lead her over to the manuscript and force her face in front of it. She absorbs all the information in the book without even turning the pages, and when he lets her loose, she's bleeding from the eyes. She embraces him, and as her hands go around his neck, they brush against what looks like a parasitic twin growing out of his back. Given my next episode, that was an unsettling bit of synchronicity. Spoilers. Trent heads back to the hotel, looking for Styles, and she comes staggering in, babbling that she's losing herself, and warning Trent ominously not to read Kane's book. He goes looking for Mrs. Pickman, noticing on his way down that the figures in the painting have turned into writhing, tentacled monsters, and finds her down in the cellar murdering her husband. She doesn't look human anymore, having elongated snake-like arms, and even though Trent still thinks this is all fake, he's not about to tempt fate. He runs back upstairs to Linda, but she's behind the frosted glass door of the bathroom, growing tentacles of her own. They retract just before she comes out, but she still punches Trent hard enough to send him straight through the wooden door of the hotel room and knock it off its frame. He makes a run for it and heads downtown in the car. But somehow Stiles has gotten there ahead of him, and she's playing Ring Around the Rosie with the monster kids. Literally, that's not a, a metaphorical term for she's pals with them, she's literally playing Ring Around the Rosie with them. Trent ducks into the bar to avoid them and finds Simon again, covered in his own blood and clearly in bad shape. Simon says, The thing I can't remember is what came first, us or the book. Which is a wonderfully unsettling line, but it just makes Trent angry. He insists that none of this can be happening, but Simon proves him wrong by putting a shotgun under his chin. Trent shouts, Don't! And Simon says, I have to, he wrote me this way, just before pulling the trigger. The clearly real death is something Trent can't explain. He runs back out to find a growing mob of monsters, and Stiles standing by the car waiting for him. He punches her and drags her into the car, but she's got the keys and she literally swallows them while he watches. They made fake keys out of pasta for that scene. But Trent is nothing if not resourceful, and he hotwires the ignition with a screwdriver from the glove compartment and drives away. When she tries to sexually assault him, it's what the readers want. He stops the car and gets out, only to find to his horror that she's transforming into a monster. She crawls out on all fours, but her head is twisted around backwards, and her limbs are contorted in a very disturbing way, even though it's pretty easy to tell that the face is an obvious prosthetic. The practical effects by KNB uh, are a little over-ambitious for the budget, but I'll always have a place for a movie that takes big swings it can't quite pull off over ones that don't try anything imaginative. Trent makes it back to the car and drives away, but the road flares up into strange light and he winds up right back in front of the monster mob again. He tries turning away a second time, passing the mysterious bicyclist again, but the road keeps twisting around on him and leading him into the mob. 
Finally, on the fourth iteration of the encounter, he guns the engine to plow straight through them. But when he sees Styles at the back of the pack, he swerves to avoid her and crashes, knocking himself out. He wakes up in the church's confessional, locked inside and unable to push open the door. On the other side of the divider, Sutter Kane tells him that the world's religions have been unable to create their gods for real because they haven't been able to make people fear them enough, a mistake he won't make with his new and unholy Bible. He's going to sell his book to a billion people, translate it into 18 languages, and make it into a movie, and open the way for the old gods to return by driving his audiences mad with the words contained within. Now this is an old and endlessly fascinating idea, a text that contains concepts so horrifying, so monstrous, that simply comprehending them is destructive to the soul. It's dreadfully fascinating to contemplate, almost alluring in its fatal curiosity. Even though we don't want to know, the idea of never finding out carries its own punishments. Ironically, though, the most popular example I can think of is done in a comedy, uh, Monty Python's funniest joke in the world. The joke's so funny that just hearing it will kill you with laughter. Kane lets Trent out of the confessional and hands him the manuscript, telling him that it's Trent's role in the story to bring the book back into the world and set the apocalypse into motion. Trent refuses, but Kane explains that he's as much a fictional creation as Hobbes' end and will have no choice but to do what he says. Kane opens up the tunnel back to reality, then rips himself open like the pages of a book to reveal a Stygian darkness on the other side. Styles narrates Trent's own actions straight out of the book as he first peers in, then runs headlong from the horde of slimy monsters that boil out of the rift in existence. He stumbles, falls, and barely makes it to the other side before they descend upon him. He finds himself in the middle of a country road, alone and carrying the manuscript. A paperboy cycling by, played by a young Hayden Christensen and not the gentleman from earlier, directs him back to the highway, and he leaves the manuscript behind and hitchhikes to the nearest hotel, where he passes the night watching Robot Monster on TV. The next morning, he prepares to catch a bus back to New York, but... A package arrives for him, containing Kane's pages. Nobody knows who sent it. Nobody knows how they knew that Trent was there. But just to be on the safe side, he burns it all in the bathroom sink before he leaves. Kane appears to him in a dream on the bus ride back, telling him that he's become God and it won't be possible for Trent to escape his role in the narrative. He demonstrates his control over reality by turning everything around Trent blue, which is Kane's favorite color, but it turns out to be just another dream. He goes back to Arkane and explains everything to Harglow. But Harglow explains that it can't be true. None of it. There never was a Linda Stiles, there never was a Hobbes End, and John Trent hand-delivered the manuscript for the best-selling new Sutter Kane novel, In the Mouth of Madness, to him. Personally. Months ago. They're already about to release the movie. I love this moment. I love it way more than if they'd had him somehow succumb to Kane's control like a puppet. It's so much more chilling to find out that even though he's a fictional character, he's got all the agency in the world, but it doesn't make any difference because the results of his actions have already been written and they can't be stopped. It's so creepy. Trent goes down that same alley again where he pulls the rip on the poster and sees his own face staring back at him, and then to the nearest bookstore, where he sees his own face on the cover of In the Mouth of Madness and on all of the displays. A reader comes out, already engrossed in the book and bleeding from the eyes, and Trent says, Like the book? 
Love it, the man says, his iris is already beginning to distort. And Trent replies, good. Then this shouldn't come as much of a surprise. And he chops the reader down with an axe. Which is what led him to Dr. Wren's company. Wren admits that the book is having an effect on its readers, and anyone who watches the new movie that's just come out, but he's not willing to credit Trent's story. He promises that he wants to help Trent get out of the institution, but Trent explains that he feels a lot safer in here than he does out in the world, where civilization is rapidly collapsing into apocalyptic chaos and madness. But as he soon discovers, that's not entirely true. As he listens from inside his cell, the staff is set upon by inhuman monsters that leave him the only person still alive in the building. He's still got the ending to act out, after all. He walks out of his unlocked cell, passing by a radio where emergency broadcasters are warning people not to trust their friends or family if they've read the book, and wanders into the city. Finding a movie theater that's still somehow functioning, despite the lack of staff, he makes himself a bucket of popcorn and settles in to watch In the Mouth of Madness. And as he sees his own story played out in front of him, with himself played by himself, Trent finally allows his mind to collapse into wild, inhuman, sobbing laughter as he accepts the truth at last. It's a perfect ending, the metafictional serpent eating its own tail, and I honestly feel like it's the sort of movie that makes you immediately want to go back and watch it from the beginning to pick up everything you missed. And as a result, will I hang on to this movie? Yes, I will. As I said, I wasn't thrilled when I saw it in theaters back in 1995, but I've grown to appreciate it despite its longueurs in the early section, and I really enjoy its doom-laden apocalyptic ending. It's one of many triumphs from John Carpenter, and even though I know he's frustrated by his lack of contemporary appreciation, I hope he's happy living his best life knowing that his legend only continues to grow. And if you want to talk about John Carpenter, solipsism, or anything else that came up on this podcast, you can find me on Twitter at at @halfhorror and on Tumblr and Letterboxd as HalfPriceHorror. My watch list on Letterboxd contains everything I plan to tackle in future episodes. If there's something you'd like to hear about, let me know. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash halfpricehorror, and you can rate and review me on Apple Podcasts and anywhere else this podcast is found. And next time on Half Price Horror, I was going to do Suspiria next time, but you know how it is when you suddenly remember an important appointment? Well, I'd completely forgotten that it's time to cut out the cancer. And when we dig into James Wan's 2021 film Malignant, we'll find out why it's important to do exactly that. See you then.